0: So what we're doing over these few weeks is kind of looking at what makes a church a church. That was week number one in this series. We talked about the three kind of core uh, realities that define a local church as a church. One is that they're Christians, so these are people that are born again, trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. Two is that they have been baptized upon uh, as a profession of that faith in Christ, so as a public testimony to their faith and to what God has done in their lives, and the baptism kind of marks an entrance into the family of God. And then finally, they have agreed to be a church. They have covenanted together uh, to uh, become, uh, to organize as a local church and to represent the body of Christ uh, in their local environment. So that was week one. Uh, Last week, we started looking at really our statement of faith, which is the Baptist faith and message. Um, And so... We're going to continue that today. The way that I've kind of broken it down is into three chunks. The first of those being gospel foundations, and really all we did last week was look at the, the statement on the scriptures, what we believe about the Bible. Uh, and so we, we learned uh, that the Bible is God's word, that the Bible is trustworthy, that the Bible is authoritative in our lives, that the Bible is sufficient. It's enough. We don't need to seek new special messages from God to tell us what to do. We just need to come to the scriptures gain his wisdom, and then follow the Holy Spirit in our lives in that way. Uh, so we looked at the scriptures. Today, we're going to talk about gospel truths, really kind of the body, a large part of the body of the statement of faith, um, really just kind of outlines what the story of the gospel is. And then next week, we'll talk about some of the, the last part of that statement is kind of like how we live out that gospel, what, what that, how that shapes our lives as Christians, and as a church community. And so today we focus on the middle part, uh, gospel truths. And I'm really going to just tell a story. What I'm going to do today is just tell you the one grand epic, to use the word correctly, of the Bible. The Bible tells one big story from start to finish. And though we like to think of ourselves as the central character, I'm going to burst your bubble and tell you that you're not at the middle of this story. You do have a part in the story. It's it's an important part. It's a beautiful part. But you're not the main character. I'm not the main character. So we're going to tell the story. If you want to have that statement of faith to be able to follow along and see how those various statements actually fit into it, you are welcome to do that. We have a few copies of it at the welcome table back there. Um, But for the purposes of this message, all you got to do is follow a story. We're just going to tell a story. And I'm going to rely for some help on my trusty friend here, the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. All right, is anybody familiar with this book? A few of you are. That's great. All right, so I know it's like a kid's book, but this is really good stuff. This is good not just for kids. This is good for grown-ups, and I wouldn't be ashamed to be found reading it by myself with no kids in the room. This is helpful and beautiful, and because it does such a good job of telling the big story of the Bible and actually showing how some of the smaller stories in the Bible, especially kind of Old Testament stories about Abraham and Moses and David and all those guys, how they fit into the bigger story does a really, really good job of that. So this would be an outstanding resource for you to find. Even if you have no children, I would recommend the Jesus Storybook Bible. So today we're going to have the help of Sally here and the Jesus Storybook Bible just a little bit as we go. But I'm going to tell you the story of the Bible, which is really the story of the universe and the story of history in seven chapters. Chapter 1, God. Chapter 1, God. The gospel starts with God. God is eternal. God existed before anything else. God didn't have to be created. He just was. He just existed. From before time, from before the foundation of the world, God was there. God was, God is holy. We use that word a lot. Don't always think about what it means. We usually think it means that he's perfect, which he is, but it means more than that. It really means that he is unique. He is different. He is utterly different from us. He's in a different category of being than we are. He's not just better than people, smarter than people, stronger than people. He is a different kind of a being than people are because he's creator and we are creature. He's holy. He's different. He's three in one. That's mind-boggling. God is three persons in one God. One being. Eternally. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This triune, three in one, all-powerful, all-knowing, holy, self-existing God is there Before anything else. By the way, he's not lonely. He's not aching for a friend, looking for something to do. He's not bored. All the various things that you might have heard through the years about why God, why create a universe? Why create people? Well, he was lonely and he needed you to be his friend. God needed nothing. We just read in Acts 17, God is... God doesn't live in temples made by hands. He's not served by human hands as though he needs anything. In fact, he gives life and breath and everything else to us. So we're not like helping God out by coming into the the picture, right? God creates out of love. He creates out of an overflow of his character and the holy friendship that existed among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from before time Began. He created everything that was. And if you were to read the, the beginning of the book of Genesis, the very first statements in the Bible, you will find that he created everything that was by speaking words. God spoke, and it came to be. Let there be light, and there it was. Let there be land and sea and birds and plants and whales, and there they were. Well, they capped off his creation. With a masterpiece. The final, most precious part of his creation leads us to chapter two man, mankind, people. People were created by God, people were created by God in his image. Genesis one twenty seven. God says, let us create man in our image. So people somehow have the likeness of God in their very nature. In what it means to be human, in some way is to be like God. Now we know, we've already said, God's holy, God's different, God's unique. So we're not like God in every way, for sure. But there's something about a human being that resembles God. There's something about a human being that reflects God's character and his nature. So God is a creator. People create, right? Endlessly from the beginning of time on down through the ages to where we are now. Creation and innovation and new ideas and inventions and medical advancements and technology. People create. Why do they create? Because they're made in the image of a creator. They're made in the image of a creating God, and so they create. People feel. People feel sad, or happy, or angry, or scared, or warm, or loving. Why do people have these feelings? Because they bear the image of a feeling God, a personal God. We bear his image, and so we're like him. He put them in a garden and he gave them control of the world. Under his lordship, he said, Go and have dominion. So cultivate the ground and make the, you know, till the ground so that the plants will grow and take care of the animals and things like that. Well, why why do they have dominion? Because they're made in the image of of a King God. We bear the image of God. So people were created in God's image. People were created male and female. that very same verse where he says, let us make man in our image, then it says, and so he made them in his image. Male and female, he made them. So our binary gender, male or female, is a part of what it means not just to be human, but I think to bear God's image. So maleness and femaleness in some way reflect the character of God. That's a part of his design. Men and women, male and female, that distinctness is not an accident, it's not an inconvenience, it's an intentional excuse me, and beautiful part of what it means to be human. God made us in his image, and he made us male and female. He made us innocent and free. You probably don't feel innocent because stuff went wrong, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But when God first made people, they were pure. They were perfect. They were innocent. They didn't hate each other. Adam and Eve didn't get into arguments over what to watch on TV tonight right? They they didn't fight with each other. They they didn't fight with the the creation, and and they didn't have to work hard against the ground that was growing thistles and weeds. They, They were innocent. There was purity. There was love, and they were free. They could choose. God said, love me, worship me, obey me. But he also said, there is this tree in the middle of the garden that you should stay away from. And in fact, If you eat the fruit of that tree, you'll die. And then he gave them a choice. Enjoy all of the beauty of the creation that I've made for you. Enjoy the perfect relationship you have with me as your creator. Enjoy the harmony and the love that you share with one another. Exercise the dominion over the world that I've given to you. Or, eat that fruit of that tree and die. He gave them a choice. Well, here is how... uh, Sally summarizes the creation of man. Is this up there? Yeah. So God breathed life into Adam and Eve. When they opened their eyes, the first thing they ever saw was God's face. When God saw them, he was like a new dad. You look like me, he said. You're the most beautiful thing I've ever made. God loved them with all of his heart, and they were lovely because he loved them. And Adam and Eve joined in the song of the stars and the streams and the wind and the trees, the wonderful song of love to the one who made them. Their hearts were filled with happiness, and nothing ever made them sad or lonely or sick or afraid. God looked at everything he made. Perfect, he said, and it was. But all the stars and the mountains and oceans and galaxies and everything were nothing Compared to how much God loved his children, he would move heaven and earth to be near them always. Whatever happened, whatever it cost him, he would always love them. And so it was that the wonderful love story began. But the wonderful story takes a tragic turn. And as all good stories, there's got to be conflict, right? You've got the setting. We've learned who the characters are, we've got the pieces in place, but something goes wrong. And the story of human history, and this story that God is writing from the beginning of time to the end, is no different. There is a tragic turn in chapter 3, sin. Chapter 3, sin comes into the world because Adam and Eve use that freedom that God gave them not to worship and love God and to enjoy the harmony and the the beauty of relationship with each other and to exercise careful dominion over the world that he gave them, but to disobey and to eat the fruit from the tree that he said, stay away from that. Satan came into the picture, tempted them to to distrust God. God's not really telling you the whole story. Are you really going to die? You're not going to die if you eat that fruit. In fact, God knows that you're going to be more, even more like him. You're going to know good from evil, and you're going to be wise. And so Adam and Eve disobeyed. And in their sin, tragic enough, they passed on a sinful nature to all people. So the world which was perfect and beautiful and innocent and in harmony and good relationship with God, is broken and falls into disrepair. And what was perfect and whole is now shattered. And so all human beings, the Bible tells us, everybody that has been born since Adam and Eve has this nature that is inclined toward sin. We choose sin. There's no one who seeks God. There's none righteous, not even one, the psalmist says. Paul repeats that in the book of Romans. So that sin inclination, that desire to sin, has been passed on to every human being. It's this sin nature, it's this inclination to sin that makes you want to sit on the couch and watch football instead of helping your wife cook dinner, or instead of cleaning up dishes, or instead of going out and playing with your kids, you would rather sit finish your show or your game. It's this inclination to sin that makes you want to see things and to have things that you have no right seeing and no right having. Things that are beyond the boundaries that God has established for what is good and holy. So the things that you desire that you know you shouldn't have and shouldn't want. Why do you want those things? Because of sin. Because Adam and Eve made this choice to disobey God and everything fell into disrepair. And that sin nature got passed on from person to person to person to person, all the way down to you and me. And so that sin nature is there as a constant companion. Thinking even more broadly than that, than those little specific inclinations towards sin personally, this sin nature and this sin problem is the reason that people shoot people in Las Vegas. This is the reason that there are racial divides and distinctions and barriers and prejudices that divide people all over our nation and world. Sin is the reason that there are Wars from nation to nation. Why families don't stay together. Sin is it. Sin is the reason. This is the problem. But beyond all of those things, even more important than all of those expressions of brokenness, the biggest problem that sin creates is that it places us outside of our good relationship with God, and in fact, under condemnation. It places us under the just judgment of a holy God. Because our sin separates us from Him. Our sin is an offense against Him and His majesty. All sin is that. You can sin against a person, but it's always a sin against God too. So, every sin is a sin against at least two, right? A sin against yourself, a sin against your spouse or your child or your neighbor, and ultimately a sin against God. So, all people have received this sin nature, and all people stand under condemnation. And because of that, we are in desperate need of help, desperate need of grace, grace to restore this broken relationship with God, grace to fulfill our created purpose because God put us on the world with a mission, exercise dominion over it, take care of it, right? Live in union with me and with one another and take care of the world. That is the way. God's people in God's place under God's rule. That is what he intended from the beginning. And we are in desperate need of God's Grace of something from the outside to come in and to fix what we have broken. Here's how Sally Lloyd Jones summarizes this fall and its effects. I lost it. There it is. You see, sin had come into God's perfect world and it would never leave. God's children would be always running away from him and hiding in the dark. Their hearts would break now and never work properly again. God couldn't let his children live forever, not in such pain, not without knowing him. There was only one way to protect them. You will have to leave the garden now, God told his children, his eyes filling with tears. This is no longer your true home. It's not the place for you anymore. But before they left the garden, God made clothes for his children to cover them. He gently clothed them, and then he sent them away on a long, long journey, out of the garden, out of their home. Well, in another story, it would all be over, and that would have been the end. But this is not another story. This is the story of a God who doesn't give up. This is the story of a God whose love never runs out and never fails. And so, chapter 4, Christ. Jesus Christ enters the picture. Remember that God is three in one? Remember that God has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Spirit? Well, in the miracle of Christmas, God the Son is going to come to us. God knows that we can't make our way back to Him because of our sin. So God is going to come to us. And in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, God the Son takes on human flesh and nature. The big snazzy word for that is incarnation. The putting on of flesh. God becomes a man. And it's not only good news because it's so amazing in its Humility in the the mercy of God the Son, the eternal God taking on this human nature and form. It It is amazing and it is good news because of what Jesus Christ did when He lived here as a man. First, Jesus lived obediently in our place. Remember Adam and Eve? They failed. They had the mandate. They had the mission, they had the marching orders, and they failed. They disobeyed. You and me, we failed. We haven't lived up to God's standards. We haven't honored God's law. We haven't kept His covenant. So we failed. But Jesus took up obedience where we had failed. He took up perfect holiness where we failed had blown it. And so Jesus lived a perfectly obedient life as God and man in our place. Jesus didn't just live in our place. Jesus died for sin in our place. Because we stood under the just condemnation of this holy God. Because our brokenness and our offense and our rebellion against God placed us Under his judgment, Jesus, in his perfect life and his perfect obedience, stood between us and absorbed all of God's judgment. All of God's wrath against your sin was poured out on Jesus. God's wrath against my sin, my refusal to serve my wife or my kids, my desire to see what I should not see, My complicity, the part that I play in those racial prejudices and in the wars and the tensions with people, all of that, Jesus took it. Jesus paid for it in my place at the cross. Jesus didn't just die in our place. Jesus rose from death in our place. Jesus came back to life. Jesus defeated death and he set aside hell and the grave and the claim of death on people and he took care of it and he moved it out of the way and he said, I've been there and I've come back and it's done. So my people don't have to experience it anymore. It's over. It's done. He rose from the dead so that his new and eternal life could become ours. Jesus lived obediently in our place. Jesus died for sin in our place. Jesus rose from the dead in our place. And Jesus invites us to follow him. Jesus extends open hands and says, Come, just as he said to Peter and James and John and all of his disciples, Come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. That same outstretched hand is inviting us today. Come to me. Bring your sins to me. Bring your brokenness and your burdens and your worries. Bring that all to me. Let me set it aside and just follow me. Come and live life with me. And finally, this is what we're still waiting for. Jesus will return to bring us with him. Jesus will return to bring us with him. We're getting ahead of ourselves. We'll come back to that. But chapter 4 The good news of Jesus Christ is that God came to us. God, in fact, became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ to take our sin upon himself, to take up obedience and to take our penalty and to rise from the dead. And now he invites us to follow him. Well, chapter 5, salvation. Salvation. Salvation means... To be saved. We've already set up what we're being saved from. Namely, the brokenness of our relationship with God and our relationship with others and our relationship with the creation, which is all in disarray and disunity and disrepair. And that judgment that was coming for us for eternity, all of that is where we stand until God does something. So he did what he needed to do to take care of things in Jesus. He sent Jesus into the world to take up obedience and to die for our sins and rise from the dead. And now he is offering a way back to him. He is offering us a way to take all of that stuff that Jesus did, all that stuff that Jesus purchased in his life and death and resurrection, and to apply it to ourselves. To apply it to our lives and our souls and to change our not just today but our forever to change it, so salvation includes the restoring of our fellowship with God because where i couldn 't even relate to god couldn 't know God because of my sin, when Jesus takes it out of the way, it gives me a pathway back to him, I can know him, I can talk to him, I can learn from him, I can spend time in his word, and his spirit will guide me and direct me and shape me, my relationship with God is restored through salvation. He repairs uh, our broken lives, our broken selves, body, soul, emotion, relationship. All of this is broken and in need of repair. And through salvation, God begins to put the pieces back together. God begins to restore what was broken in us, and where we have these patterns of, of sin, and, or maybe it's a, a, an anger habit, or maybe it's a, a selfishness habit, or whatever it is where I just am in these ruts. And this is how I behave. This is how I live. God begins to dig us out of those ruts and start to train us in new ways. He repairs the brokenness and the selfishness and the sinfulness in our lives. And this offer to be saved from the judgment of God for your sin, to be saved from the brokenness that sin has brought into our lives and relationships is freely offered to all who accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. So it comes down to what are you going to do with the Lord Jesus? When Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16, who do people say that I am? They gave him some other answers. Well, you know, some people say that Maybe you're Elijah the prophet, kind of come back in a new form. Other people say you're, you know, a messenger from God. And then Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? That is the most important question that you'll ever have to answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because all of this stuff we're talking about, all the benefits of salvation, this being restored from our brokenness and being rescued from the judgment of God that's coming upon our sin and all of that, all of that hinges upon Jesus, who He is and what He did. So who do you say that He is? And do you believe that He did what only He can do and that what He said is true? Do you believe? It comes down to that, which is why in John 3.16, Jesus Himself said, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. So this offer of salvation is is given to everyone who will trust in Jesus Christ, receive Him, believe in Him as Lord and Savior. Well, when a person is saved, when a person finds himself trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, He is placed into a community, which leads us to chapter 6, church. Chapter 6, church. Salvation is personal, but it's also a community project. It's also a community life. When God saves a sinner, he places him or her into the body of Christ, the church. And sinners saved by grace around the world organize into local churches all over the place. And so the church, the people of God, the body of Christ, have these marching orders from the Lord Jesus himself. So here are some things that the church does. The church displays the love of God to the world. Remember Jesus said to his people, his followers, the world will know you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. The church and their love for one another is to be a testimony to the world, looking in. Wow, they love each other well. Wow, they forgive each other for their offenses against each other. Wow, they take care of one another when they're sick or when they're hurting. That's a testimony to the world about God, about His character, about His love. So the church displays the love of God to the world. The church fulfills the Great Commission. The Great Commission is the the phrase that we've dubbed Jesus' kind of final instructions to the disciples. In Matthew 28, 19, 20, Jesus said to to his disciples, after he had raised from the dead and he's about to go back to heaven, he said, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. So the mission of the church is to make disciples, to multiply disciples, make disciples who are making disciples throughout the world and throughout our time here. God's work is not done, which is why we're still here. And the church is where God does his work. God does his redemptive work in the world through The local church. This one and thousands of others around the world. The church guards the good news of Jesus. This story, this grand storyline that tells what happened from the beginning and is going to happen at the end, where we all fall into this story. The church has been entrusted with this message. God has handed down to us this story. And he says, be faithful in telling this story. Keep true to it. Don't let the details change. Don't lose important factors of this story. Keep it intact and share it. Share the story with others. So this is all heading somewhere. And it's heading back to kind of the way things were in the beginning. You remember when God made Adam and Eve and He created this garden and He put them in this beautiful world and everything was good? God's people were living in God's place under God's rule. And all of this work that God has been doing in Jesus Christ from the time of the fall, from the time that sin entered the world till now and until Jesus comes back is all purchasing for us chapter 7 kingdom the kingdom of god is coming in its fullness the kingdom of god will be reestablished will be realized fully and god will reign over his people in his place without an opponent all the things that bring us such grief and worry and fear today will be no more. All those wars and rumors of wars will be done away with. All of those divisions, the racial prejudices, and the various other things that keep people apart and create this hatred and animosity toward one another, all of that will be done away with. Not because, by the way, we stop being distinct, but because the differences no longer divide us. Because the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible gives us this glorious picture of heaven, this glorious picture of the kingdom of God. And what's happening there is not, hey, everybody looks the same now. What happens is there are people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation on the earth gathered together around the throne of Jesus Christ singing the same song. So the things that divide us here won't divide us there. There's a day coming when his kingdom will be fully, finally realized and God will be in our presence. We will live with him forever. Here's how the Jesus story Bible summarizes it. I see a sparkling city shimmering in the sky, glittering, glowing, coming down from heaven And from the sky, heaven is coming down to earth. God's city is beautiful. Walls of topaz, jasper, sapphire, wide streets paved with gold, gleaming pearl gates that are never locked shut. Where is the sun? Where is the moon? They aren't needed anymore. God is all the light that people need. No more darkness. No more night. And the king says, look. God and his children are together again. No more running away or hiding. No more crying or being lonely or afraid. No more being sick or dying. Because all those things are gone. Yes, they're gone forever. Everything sad has come untrue. And see, I have wiped away every tear from every eye. And then a deep beautiful voice that sounded like thunder in the sky says, look I am making everything new. This is the story that God has been writing from the beginning. The one that he's writing right now in your life and mine. And the one that's going to culminate someday in an eternal kingdom where Jesus rules as the king without an opponent where his people are happy and in his presence and sin and brokenness and bitterness and hatred and war and violence and oppression are a distant memory. and We're in his presence forever. This is the story and really our statement of faith in a lot more words and sort of fancier words in some places, just tells this story. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means that story is my story. It means I want my life to count in that. I want God to write my part in this story that he's telling I want to be a part of the redemption and a part of that kingdom that's coming. And I want to be a part of that community of people that guards this story and that tells this story and that invites other people in to experience the story. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to be a church. It means to be a local community of people who embrace this story, see our lives in that story, and tell that story to others. That's really what it comes down to. So one more page from the Jesus Storybook Bible is a good way to conclude today. It's kind of a paraphrase of John 1, verse 12 and 13. For anyone who says yes to Jesus, for anyone who believes what Jesus said, for anyone who will just reach out to take it, then God will give them this wonderful gift to be born into a whole new life. To be who they really are. Who God always made them to be. Their own true selves. God's dear child. Because you see, the most wonderful thing about this story is it's your story too.